Hello everyone and welcome to episode 348 of So You Want To Be A Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre where you'll find awesome writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the fantastic book, The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. How are you, Al? I'm, I'm all right. Thanks, Val. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty good. Okay, pretty good. good. How about that? Pretty good. Hashtag pretty, pretty good. good. <laughs> that, I'll, I'll, I'll live with that. <laughs> well, you know, it's a step up from fair to middling, but it's not quite cartwheel levels of excitement like I was a couple of weeks ago at the launch. So I think that's reasonable, right? What have you been up to this week? Uh, well, I had a chat with you on the weekend. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was that's always a highlight. Of course. Um, always a highlight. <laughs> and uh, what else have I been up to? I've been working on my on Maven and Reeve 2, which um, doesn't have doesn't have a title yet. Um, okay. Somebody asked me about that the other day, like, why don't you have a title for your book? And I'm like, I never have a title until I finish the book mm-hmm. because I find that the title comes out of the full manuscript. Somewhere along the way there'll be like this moment where I'll go, oh, that's it, that's the title, that's what we're going to mm-hmm. call it. Um but I've been I've got an idea for what I want the title to be, but I just haven't quite um I haven't quite got it right yet. So I can't announce. There's no announcements. Like, you, you wonder know, why so. it can't be like movies, right? Because you know, Rocky, Rocky two, Rocky three, Rocky four. Like <laughs> it's so you straightforward. Think, you think I should just call it Maven and Reef Two and be done with it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not very evocative though, is it? Like it's a little bit difficult to but it works for Sylvester wow. Stallone. Well, you true. Know? Yeah. Well, Although you know, the we're... Fast and Furious series it is a little bit different. They did variations like Fast and the Fast, you know, Fast and Furious, and then Fast and Furious Two. But then it became what did it become? Oh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Then something. Um, obviously, I didn't do my research very well. I was going to say, and obviously, <laughs> we probably don't need to go through every single version <laughs> of Fast and Furious. <laughs> Uh, thing right All now. All right. Yeah, that's fair Franchise. enough. Franchise. No. <laughs> we want to give a big shout out to um, somebody who has termed their review, So You Want to Be a Writer Junkie, and Ooh. has written, thanks for this addict. awesome podcast. I can't believe that last year I had never listened to any podcast, let alone this, the best podcast in existence. A car trip alone without it leaves me as jittery and desperate as an addict. So fortunately, I can listen to the extensive backlog of recordings when the current episode is over for the week. I always enjoy the amazing interviews, even when the genre is not something I'd read. And I've frequently purchased books as a result of hearing the author speak. I also look forward to the word of the week. Sorry, Al. (laughs) I think it's only because of last week's one. I think I've turned you, I think I've brought you a whole new bunch of fans with my last week's one. But anyway, keep going. Love it when I know them from reading Georgette Hayes, but also happy to learn new ones. Well, you can um, uh, use them in a sentence that you know, especially if your friends all listen to the podcast. So You Uh, Want to Be a Writer podcast is great accompanying for my journey as a novice writer and it's frequently got me out of creative ruts or back in focus and has even talked me back from the ledge when I was rereading a manuscript. Thanks to my dealers, (laughs) Val and Al, for my weekly hit. I'm very happy with this positive addiction that I have. (laughs) I love it. Goodness me, look at us. We're just like, we're just out there dealing the good stuff, Val. Thank you so much. So you want to be a writer junkie. We really, really appreciate it, especially that you took the time to leave us that review. It's 
fantastic. Made my week. Um, of course, if you have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating um, on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great because it helps us in the rankings. Let's move on to some news in the world of writing and publishing, shall we, Al? Mm, let's. Well, we want to give a big shout out to Petronella McGovern, who oh, yeah. not only is her new book out, The Good Teacher, um, she her last book, um, first six, book even. her first book, yes, Six Minutes, was recently shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Crime Awards. So that's pretty fantastic, prestigious stuff, isn't it? Well, yeah, and particularly like with the debut and just so well done, Petronella. We're very, very excited for you. And also mm. the um, the Good Teacher is getting rave reviews as well. So yes. it's uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, you know, I love my crime fiction. So I'm, yes. I'm on board. I'm there. I'm ready. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Um, we also want to give a big shout out um, to Felicity McVeigh, who um, – who has published her picture book and she is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre and she began dreaming up a character of a boy who loves to burp when she was feeding her (laughs) newborn daughter every night. (laughs) That makes sense. I love that idea. So the the new picture book, The Boy Who Burped, has been released by New Holland Publishers because, you know, while when she was dreaming up this idea and she had a newborn daughter, she did a couple of courses at the Australian Writers' Centre writing picture books and creative writing stage one. Now, normally her day job is director of content for TikTok. Wow, that's a big gig. I wonder if she does a lot of dancing and stuff. I bet she know. does. Why would so you not? So she, she has young kids and she um, st- loves reading picture books to them and thought she wanted to write her own picture book as well and that's exactly what she's done as a result of the um, the course and the mentoring that she received uh, from the Australian Writers' Centre. And um, there's a great s- story about how that all happened, how she got her break over on the blog. Um, we will put the link in the show notes, of course, so you can read all about how Felicity made it all happen. When I and- read the title of that book, though, it just makes me think of a my like my so my youngest son has been through many annoying phases in his life. Like he's, if anyone is going to have an annoying phase, it's going to be him. So he was mm-hmm. a whistler, he was a tapper, he was a stomper, he was a you know wow. all the things. So every you know he he's kind of like he's Mister Perpetual Motion. So there's got to be something going on at all times. But he went through a phase when he was about eight or nine of burping, and <laughs> the the burping was burping with purpose. So I think it's really maybe it was a perp rather than a burp. Um, but he was trying to get to the point where he could burp the al- you know burp the alphabet. You know how oh people God. can do that. Really? Yeah. So he was practicing. I just want you to feel my pain here. So he went through the whistling, tapping, oh, the, the whistling nearly drove me to distraction. Yeah. Um, he's a very good whistler. I cannot whistle personally, so I, I'm all over it as a talent. But it, it's so annoying to have a whistler yeah. in your life if you like peace and quiet because he's just he didn't even know he was doing it. But the burping was just, oh, we, we nearly came to blows over How the burping. How did he stop the burping? 
Well, he just got initially a reg, like he just got told like over and over again, you, you can't, Stop this is not it. something that you need to do as a hobby. <laughs> this is not something that we need in our lives as your one talent in life. You can need oh to stop. So, yeah, it just makes me think of that. So, you know, if anyone else out there has ever had a kid who tried to burp the alphabet, then please yes. know that I, I share your pain. And, you know, if you'd like to join my session where we share our stories, then, you know, pop them in the podcast community so that I too can, um, you know, give you some sympathy because it's not pretty. So when kids are a certain age, they love reading about but also performing <laughs> things like burps and farts and porks oh, and farts. noises. And I have to say I like was that, happy. Right? I was pretty happy it was a burp and not a fart thing yes. because I think the fart thing would be much worse, much worse. Yes. There's this um, Abby from our office found this game which she shared with all of us. It's a real game. You can buy it in shops called Poo Bingo. Have you seen it? I have not seen Poo Bingo, no, but it's, it sounds like a Jackie French book. <laughs> Wombat Poo Bingo, I like yes. it. So, it, well, it's, well, Wombat Poo is probably in it because Poo Bingo is, you know how normal bingo is, you call out the numbers. Yeah. And you have your sheet of numbers and you select, you, mm. you tick it off when the number's called and then you go bingo when you've got a row. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like that except instead of numbers, I believe, it is like, for example, echidna poo, kangaroo poo, um, koala poo. So technical term, animal scat. (laughs) Yes, Mm. different types of poo and then when it gets called out, you somehow mark it off. So poo bingo. I'm actually Mm. a little bit intrigued and I think I might buy it. But anyway. Um, so I was going. <laughs> I have to no say, response to that. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, we also want to congratulate Brooke Graham, who is a graduate of the Australian Writers Centre, and her picture book has just been published by EK Books. It's called "Go Away Worry Monster," and uh, Brooke has done the courses like uh, writing picture books, the Writing Picture Books Masterclass, um, Build Your Author Platform and so on because she wants to, wanted to be a picture book author and now she can say that she is exactly that. So Go Away Worry Monster um, is published by EK Books and it's out now. So pretty exciting. Well done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, she was actually in uh, working part-time as a primary school teacher in a small rural school um, when she decided to do the writing picture books course and now fantastic. All there happening for her. Yep. Good stuff. Brilliant. All right, let's move on to our competition this week. We have an excellent competition. We have three copies to win. You could win one of three copies of The Golden Maze by Richard Feidler. Beloved ABC broadcaster and best-selling author of Ghost Empire and Saga Land, Richard Feidler is back with a personally curated history of the magical city that is Prague. In 1989, Richard Feidler was living in London as part of the Australian comedy trio, remember them, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, when revolution broke out across Europe. Excited by this galvanising historic moment, he travelled to Prague, where a decrepit police state was being overthrown by crowds of ecstatic citizens. His experience of the Velvet Revolution never let go of him. Following the story of Prague from its origins in medieval darkness to its uncertain presence, Feidler does what he does so well curates an absolutely engaging and compelling history of a place. You will learn things that you never knew with a tour guide who is erudite, inquisitive, and the best storyteller you could have as your companion. You can win one of three copies. 
Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on the 21st of September. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, I know that last week the word of the week went on holiday, but it it's It did not back. go on holiday. Well, I, uh, yeah, I okay. took charge and I think it was Had a very – very well received, Very well I, I would received. say. I think my moment was in the sun there was quite spectacular. <laughs> a little bit of a, speaking of the velvet revolution, there it was, right there. <laughs> All right. So, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I'm ready, Val. It is choir. Now, I don't mean choir where you sing, you mm-hmm. know, or lots mm-hmm. of people sing. I mean choir spelt Q-U-I-R-E, choir. Ooh. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. <laughs> well, I have no further think... response except I don't. <laughs> one might think it's something to do with enquire or require or esquire or something like that, but it has nothing to do with any of those things. Acquire. She announces joy. <laughs> Acquire, Q-U-I-R-E, is actually a set of 24 uniform sheets of paper. Oh, there you go. Yes. Now, it's like a book binding things because, you, you know, of the way they put books together. Obviously, 24 mm. is some kind of magic number. There is some argument whether it's 24 or 25 because these days 25 is a quarter of a ream. And therefore, yeah, okay. is quarter of a ream. In some places of the internet, they say it is um, eight pages. I mean, sorry, four pages, which when you fold becomes eight pages, which, you know, many of us who have background in print publishing know as a signature. But, um, but generally, it's considered 24 or 25 uniform sheets of paper. Choir. Cool, huh? So cool, Val. <laughs> okay. I am and... <laughs> falling over with the coolness of it all. Oh, my God. All right. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Freelance Writing Stage 1. If you want to be a freelance writer, our course is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, Plus, learn about interview skills, industry expectations, and much more, and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Have a listen to Yosefa Pete. Before I started writing, I was doing everything except what I wanted to do. I was chasing my children, I was trying to do a million things at my work in science, and then in between that I was still trying to work for my dad's construction company. I wanted to be writing. The reason I wasn't writing is because I felt like I didn't know how to write. That stopped me every single time. When I did the course, I did the weekend course in Melbourne and it was a life-changing two days. Because I walked in thinking, I know nothing and I can do nothing and this is going to be too hard. And I walked out with every single skill I needed to be a freelance writer. The course finished on a Sunday afternoon. I'm pretty sure I sent my first pitch the next day. Followed what I'd learnt on the Sunday, <laughs> followed the pitch guidelines, I had Valerie's voice in my head, no, don't put that, put this, know your audience, know your editor. And I wrote two pitches 
and I closed my eyes and hit send on that email and two pictures came back with, yes, we would love you to write this for us. I just walked out and went, I can do this. I will do this. At the moment, I write for a lot of the Fairfax Umbrella, Essential Kids, Essential Baby, Life and Style, Daily Life, The Sunday Life. I'll continue to pursue my curiosity and I'll open myself up to all the possibilities. No matter where you live, you can do this course online. If you'd like to find out more, go to writercentre.com.au slash freelance writing. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Now, I've pretty much already introduced him, so I won't do it again, but we can <coughs> have a listen to the conversation that I have had with none other than Richard Feidler. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This book is a tour de force, The Golden Maze. We're going to get into it. Uh, but first, I mean, many people are very familiar with, with what you do. You have been in the media for many years. And now you've written this book on Prague. So for readers who haven't got their copy yet, and they should, tell us what it's about. It's a history of the city of Prague in Central Europe, the capital of Bohemia or the Czech Republic, which uh, has, I've, I've long thought is the most beautiful, enigmatic and flat out weirdest city in the world, an absolute <laughs> uh, trove of stories and weirdness and magic and science, uh, history, violence and mm -hmm. absolute over the top effervescent joy. It goes from its mythical origins in the mm. dim dark pre-Middle Ages period uh, right up to the Velvet Revolution in 1989 and a little bit beyond, uh, the Velvet Revolution that I was present to witness the aftermath of. So it goes all the way from those mythic origins right up to uh, the modern era and the end of the 20th century. It's an incredible journey for a country or a land or in a collection of many different people. But you first became interested in it because you visited it back in 1990 what was it that piqued your interest at the time? Well, I was living in London at the time uh, and I was performing in a r rather grubby comedy trio and we had a <laughs> London theatre season. And, and while I was in London, I was, I was watching this wave of revolutions uh, knock over the old decrepit Stalinist police states of Central and Eastern Europe just, just in my London flat. And I was sort of tearing my hair out and jumping out of my skin, wanting to be there. Like, mm. like, you know, to go to Berlin or to Prague, it's sort of just down the road by Australian standards from London. And so the, the last straw was when I was at home watching BBC footage of the Berlin Wall coming down and mm. people dancing atop the remnants of it, partying and drinking champagne. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? I've got to get there. So... As soon as our theatre season ended, I got on a, uh, went over to Berlin with my girlfriend at the time and we took part in some of the celebrations there, which was amazing. And then we went from there to Prague, which had just had its own revolution, which they called rather beautifully the Velvet Revolution, which was mm. the largely peaceful overthrow of this decrepit police state. And it had this incredibly powerful effect on me. It was one of the happiest and most moving experiences of my life to be in a city undertaking a joyous non-violent revolution, Valerie, where the, the really terrible people who'd been running the country were, were kicked out and replaced with this kind of fabulous, marvellous hippie playwright as their mm. new president living up in, in Prague Castle, 
who made Frank Zappa an advisor and had Lou, had Lou Reed come and play for him. It was an amazing time and in, incredibly joyful experience. Uh, so I, I never forgot it. I always intended to write a book about it. It's taken me <laughs> 30 mm. years to do so. But uh, yes, uh, I've finally done it. So it is 30 years later. What was the thing, the trigger that finally made you decide now's the time? I think I had to be enough of a grown-up to write about it. <laughs> I, 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 I'd, written, I'd written two other books, or written one book and co-written a second, uh, which are histories. The first mm. one was a history of uh, Byzantium seen through the capital of Constantinople, which is now mm. Istanbul. And mm. the second one was on the uh, Iceland and the Icelandic sagas that I co-wrote with my friend Kari Gislason. So I, I had a bit of practice, I think, at writing history, and I was ready to write history the way I like to write it, which is to have all of the great surging massive events, the complex cast of characters, but put a little bit of my own travel writing into it uh, and and also examine the mythology and the, the myths and mm. legends of the place that I'm writing about. I, I think it took me that long to sort of stand be, stand back far enough from myself as a much younger man I was 25 when I was there in the Velvet Revolution, and now I'm <clears throat> a little older than that. And uh, <laughs> and I think I you, you have to set, sort of stand back from your younger self, I think, and give you forgive you forgive your younger self for it for for your foolishness or or your lack of insight, and like that person that you were back then, but and have enough distance from him in order to be able to write about it. Back then, when you said you said that you knew you wanted to write about it, did you know at that time that it would take this form, that it would be this kind of book? What, what you know, or, or did you just kind of like the romantic notion that you wanted to write about that region one day? I think that's the second second case. I had this romantic notion that I'd like to write about it, uh, the city one day, uh, because it had affected me so so much. Mm. But at the time, I was reading a lot. I've I've always been very bookish. Mm. I travelled a lot when I was in this comedy group, and so we were always in the back of a Tarago going somewhere or another or other. And this is before the internet, so I read read a lot in those days. I read a lot of the classics of literature as a kind of a way of escaping everyone else, I think, in the tour van, but also <laughs> a lot of history, particularly a lot of history. And, and I have certain favorite historians and a certain love of, 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 of a certain way of writing history. Mm. And I, I, I don't know if I wanted to strike upon the formula that I have just yet. I think that's something that sort of crept up on me nat naturally. It mm. just seemed to suit the way of writing. It took a long while to get there, I think. And once again, I think, I, as I said, I had to be a bit more of a grown-up about it. But did you, over the past 30 years, sort of with this in the back of your head that you wanted to write a book one day, actually start collating, you know, information, research dossiers, or did that come at a point in time when you thought, I'm actually going to write the book now and I'm going to start full-on researching? Most of it when I was deciding to write the book. I had a fair fair grasp of the of Prague's 20th century history, which is yeah. so tumultuous yeah. and largely so tragic. I was quite aware that uh, Hitler and the Nazis had invaded the place in 1939 and that Hitler had spent a night in Prague Castle as, as the conqueror of the city. Yeah. And I also knew it, at the end of the war it had fallen into the grip of Stalin and had become the, the Czechoslovakia, the country which Prague's the capital, had become a, a puppet state of the Soviet Union at the time. And I was aware of that. And of course, I knew a fair bit about the Velvet Revolution having experienced it. But, but when I was there for the first time, the city was like a great big mystery to me. 
Czech is a difficult language for someone who, who has no background in Slavic languages. Mm. It's not like when you go to Italy or France or Germany and you've got English, you can sort of nut out most you know things here and there. You can see the similarities. There's a bit of overlap of of the yeah. French and German in the, in the English language, but but uh, Czech, no, that's a that's that's a really hard one, uh, and and I think in some ways that's what's alien, kept them at a distance, the Czech people from a di- at a distance from us, is because their language is so hard for us to read, mm. and so I'd see important statues with bits and pieces written in Czech underneath, and I go, I wonder what that's about. I'd see mm. the, like the huge monument to Jan Hus in the middle of the old town square and go, who, I wonder who that is and why, why he was important to them. And the enigma of the beautiful astronomical clock right next to its town hall with its kind of parade of clockwork saints mm. and a model of death ringing the hour, every hour. What, how did that come to be? So it was a bit, so I knew, like I said, it's 20th century history, but the rest of it, this kind of medieval and Baroque splendor and magnificence, yes. and I'm going to use the word again, weirdness, <laughs> extreme weirdness, um, it made it seem like a, a, a fascinating puzzle to me. So that's mm. the part of the pleasure of the book was me finding out for myself and finding out how the city came to take the shape it has. Mm. So I'm so jealous. What an incredible process of discovery you would have gone through every single day of of that research. So you went there, I understand, and like for some months. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, like where you lived and how you approached your days because presumably you were going to be there for a finite period and need to get get the entire history of Prague down, you know, during that time. So can you tell us a little bit about the time you spent in Prague? Yes, yes. I went back at the beginning of 2019. I, I, was, I applied for – this is why um, – it's good to follow the right people on Twitter and uh, and get Google News alerts, I reckon, mm. Valerie, because I, I became aware that there was this uh, Prague uh, UNESCO City of Literature uh, scheme which mm. where they would offer writer's residencies for two months at a time, just mm. so long as you were writing about Prague. And I went, writing about Prague? That's me. <laughs> so so I applied and I and, and I, I was so overjoyed to get it. Mm. So I, I, I asked to be there during the winter months because they're my favorite months in Prague. Uh, you can walk everywhere and not get hot and sweaty and tired. And it's more romantic then too. And I was there in January, February last year. And straight away I made, uh, made a path to some, uh, some contacts that I'd made in my earlier research. And I'm, I made contact with this lovely man called David Vaughan, who's a British guy who's been living there for 25 years or so and had been working with Radio Prague, the English language service there. And it, it turned out David was plugged into all sorts of parts of Prague's life he introduced me to a writer named Marek Toman, an author, mm. a local author who's really prolific. And, and he and I really hit it off. Marek, Marek and I have become good friends. He's the same age as me, similar outlook. You know, It's unusual to make new buddies late in life, but mm. there you are. We, we, uh, Marek and I became good friends very quickly. And he showed me around all sorts of places in Prague. He, he turns out, apart from being an author, Marek also works in the foreign ministry there. And he took me on a tour of the what's known as the Chernin Palace or the Black Palace uh, near the castle, which is where the foreign ministry is. And this is where the Nazis ruled over Prague while they occupied the city. And this is where a foreign minister was probably pushed to his death from a bathroom window. So this place was this palace was full of history, and he took me on a tour of it. So I, what I would do most of my days, while I, I you know. Go and hang out with these guys at night, drink beer and have dinner and have fun and go and see music and uh, see, you know, check folk music and have a marvelous time. During the days, I would sort of sit alone in my little little apartment in this kind of Soviet era apartment block. 
and write and think and write and think and then walk around a lot. Walk, walk, walk all over the city to get an easy familiarity to it. Because when I'd first gone there, it was kind of like, I liken it to the process of falling in love. I sort of fell in love with the city a bit. And the city was like that fascinating stranger, you know, that the, mm. the loved one is when you first meet them. But then you get to know them better and get them to know their qualities, good and bad. And it's a kind of a different kind of love. Mm. And that's how it was. I began to learn to walk all over the city and, and find my way around it. And knowing more about the history, I could see all kinds of things that I, couldn't, I didn't see the first time around. That really helped a lot. Like the founding figure, the legendary founding figure of the city is a witch princess named Lubusha. And there's no mm. evidence she ever existed, but most Pragas think she was definitely real. <laughs> and if you look around Prague, you can see her image everywhere, all over the place, you know, on top of a shop somewhere or in a mosaic in the old town hall or in a cemetery, you see a statue of her. So that, that all really helped. I was meeting as many people as I could, writing as much as I could, working every single day and having, them, having the most wonderful time. So you were doing, you were writing as much as you could. Can you give us just a bit of a timeline as to, you know, when you wrote your first draft, how long it took, and 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 what happened after that? Now we get into the messy, embarrassing part of things. I <laughs> overwrote this manuscript. I'm, I'm 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 confessing that to you now. I overwrote it shockingly. My first, my first draft came in at about 175,000 words, wow. which is ridiculous. Oh. Ridiculous. And, and, you know, I didn't want it to be any bigger than my first book. And, and someone said, oh, why don't you make it a two-parter? I was like, oh, God, no. No, no, no. It's going to be in a single volume. Uh, and I overwrote it. Uh, and I, I, I'm still trying to figure out why. I didn't do that with my other two. I mean, I overwrote The Ghost Empire a little bit, but nothing like this. And yeah. so I had to weed out a good 40,000, uh, 40 to 50,000 words, and it's all the better for it as well. Uh, and as I did so, I sort of began to um, draw some conclusions about my process. I don't think I have a terribly efficient process. I tend to write as I research. Mm. I met another a British author, historian called Lucy Ingalls when I was at the Ulbert Writers Festival, and she told me she wrote a history of opium. She said she took two years to research and then one year to write the book. Like, wow, how do, you, how do you find the discipline to do that? I want to start writing it straight away yeah. and then rewrite it and rewrite it. So that's how I do it. I, I, I tend to write as I go along and rewrite and rewrite, cut it back, cut it back, uh, write a bit more, cut it back, and then stand, put it away for a little while, for a week or two, and then come back at it and see what's really singing. Mm. I think with – I'm always looking to create a kind of music. I, it's, not like, it's not unlike writing music, I find, writing a, writing a book. You need to hear the the, the music in, in the language. It's got the same kind of cadence and rhythm, uh, dissonance, yes. harmony. All those all those rules of music I find apply to writing as well. So if I'm not hearing the music, yeah, it's not right. So how long did it take you to write that first draft? Did you start it in your residency, and or did you complete it in that residency? Oh, no. <laughs> My word, I didn't even get a chapter done during that residency. Right, <laughs> I, was, I decided while I was there, I was, I was going to write about the Prague Spring, uh, the period in 1968, when suddenly the communist regime liberalized. They got a new leader called Alexander Dubček, and suddenly there was freedom of speech. Suddenly people could write what they like. People were going on TV saying extraordinary things. Uh, rock and roll bands were starting up. Uh, books were being published. People were free to travel overseas for the first time, and then it was all crushed in eight months by the Soviet invasion, and that was that. So this incredibly romantic and powerful time. 
which is depicted in Milan Kundera's novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, the moment mm. when the Soviet tanks rolled in. So I, I, there's so much research to undertake with that. It was so different from writing medieval history where sometimes you only have two or three sources, sometimes one source and a bunch of coins mm. and a, uh, some kind of altarpiece and something else to tell you what was going on. But, but when you're writing about the Prague Spring, it's so well documented, so many different accounts. I, I, I really set myself the task of reading as much as possible uh, to try and get a, a 3D sense of that moment, how how the events were swirling around, how what was going on in the Central Committee building where the Communist Party was ruling from, what was happening in the street, what was happening on the Charles Bridge, what was happening in the colleges, uh, and what was happening in Moscow and and outside of the city, and having all that work and pinning it all down. I got more disciplined as I went along. With mm. with As I wrote chapters that were preceding that, I started to write at a hugely complex timeline. That's that's something I'm going to keep doing from now on. That really helped a lot. That saved a lot of time in the end. So I got more disciplined as I went on, and uh, after a very messy, hairy start, I was still figuring out figuring out how to even write it. So this is these are all uh, arrived at by incremental decisions. And sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, Valerie, the best decisions I took were when I got up in the morning and I had a shower, and I was stern with myself in the shower. I'd, I'd sort of say, now, what are you writing? What are you getting at? What's the point? Where are you, what are you arriving at? N- enough of this, you know, messing around here. What do you want? What's, where, where are we going with this? So uh, I, I didn't take a day off for about three and a half years, which is how long it took <gasps> to, to write the whole thing in between doing my broadcasting work. Oh, my God. So, so, so there were times when I was properly stern with myself and I felt better about myself then and other times when I was in quite a muddle for quite a while and, and I had to put it aside and come back again and look, look hard at it. Wow. Now, I want to come back to the research because that's such an important element of this book, but I want to just explore this part about you didn't take a day off for three and a half years. No. So, obviously, you're very busy. You have other commitments. You have um, you know, a high-profile job that you also need to devote time to. What did you, deter- did you dedicate the dis- – was the dis- discipline a certain number of hours per day or a certain number of words reached? How did you actually achieve the 175,000 words in the end on a practical level, <laughs> apart I, from I, talking I to yourself sternly in the shower? So, uh, well, there's the, the demands of my, my radio job means sometimes you just have to do things right now and stop mm. what you're doing and get to work and, and do the work on that. And, and I was working in and around it. I, in the last few years, I've decided to, to share. I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to share the presenting load with my wonderful colleague Sarah Konoski. So I'm, I'm on air Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays now, and she does Thursdays, Fridays. I work four days a week at that. So that meant I, I've been jealous about keeping all of my Friday free. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really enough. You do need to work on every single day, I find. Particularly if you've got your uh, if you've got your chops up, you know if you if you're writing well, mm-hmm. and you've it's like again it's like music. If you've got to practice every single day, I find you've, if you if you want to write, you've got to do it every single day in order to keep that flow happening, that sense of flow happening. And if you stop, if you have to stop for two weeks, then you've got to go through that awful process mm. of getting the flow back, which can take a week of bad writing. Mm. and cutting back and deleting and cutting back and deleting. And finally, you know, there's a day it kicks back in and you, you, you're back in the flow again and you're able to uh, write properly once more. So I was often getting up really early in the morning. That's a really good thing to do, I find. Mm. Uh, I've got a cat. 
that howls to be let in at five o'clock every single morning. Uh, and that helped a lot. That was kind of a feline alarm clock to get up and start working. Um, so, uh, and, and being in a nice, quiet, dark house where you can make coffee and mm. sit there and, and work and then the sun comes up and you, you can be quite surprised by how much you've got done. Um, I've talked to other writers. Quite a few writers do this, actually. They get up very early in the morning and have the peace of those early hours before everyone else is up to get your writing done. Because mm. as soon as 8 a.m. comes around, everyone's going to start ringing you or emailing you saying, oh, can you just do this for me? Can you just do this for me? I need you to do this. I need you to do this. It's amazing how much we are servants of other people. <laughs> so, so those hours are precious, I think, those early morning ones. When something, when you've been living with something like this for so long, for three and a half years, and then you finish, what do you suddenly just do with yourself? You know, <laughs> did you feel weird? <laughs> um, you know, I you am know? feeling a bit weird. It's only recent too. Like I was, I was, I was working on the book right up until deadline, fine, fine tuning it, making it sort of making it snap. So, uh, so I'm, I'm just learning to live in this new world now. Uh, yes. I'm reading again. That's nice. Reading, <laughs> reading for pleasure. Uh, so rather than relentlessly researching, I don't have that voice in my head saying, why, why are you doing this? Why are you wasting time? Why can't you get back to work, get the job done? Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being more of a chauffeur for my family because <laughs> I'm the only one, only one who drives in the family. So, uh, and, and with COVID, everyone needs to be driven everywhere because I just don't want yeah. kids catching the bus because I don't want to yeah. get COVID. So, mm. so I'm driving everyone, my daughter back and forth to, from school. Uh, my son do his band practice and, um, and and do everything else. So so I'm I, I think I took an afternoon off uh, on the weekend to just just to read. My wife likes to read as well. Just sitting there reading with her was 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 delicious, and <laughs> it felt like I was being naughty. Wow! <laughs> All right. So I want to come back to the research because, as you say, this is this is starts from the mythology from prehistory, right? Uh, until well, really, the entire history of this <laughs> of this region. So, in terms of the research, a phenomenal amount of research has been undertaken. I have to know, on a practical level, how in the world you compiled all of that. Refer, you know, was a, were able to keep track of it. How did you know which bits were going to go where? How, how in the world did you just? Um, manage it all from a practical point of view with your research? I, I was very careful to footnote everything as I went along, in, even in my very first drafts, so I could go and revisit the source rather than have to waste time digging it up again. So I was quite meticulous as I went along footnoting all my sources. Uh, mm. um, and that meant I could cross-check all the time. Mm. Sometimes I'm, I've always got a, a bit of a nose for, for narrative, for a, a cracker of a story. And sometimes you find a story that's just wonderful and you think, uh, is this too good to be true? And so then you have to cross-check. You have to sort of yeah. use your references. I have a whole lot of sort of books here that are a sort of over general over, and more specific books on Prague's history and Czech history and European history. And I'll go and cross-check against those and then burrow right into the internet burrow mm. right into the internet um, through various uh, various research areas that I'm able to get access to. I was able to burrow into all, all kinds of old history um, journals of Central Europe and 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 double check and triple check just to make sure I've got the story right. And that way, mm. that that helps you find sometimes if the story's right, you get these this 
other richer, more richer details to in yes. order to uh, invest in that story and, and and bring it all together. And of mm. course, sometimes though, you find uh, Prague being the way it is, you find there's some there are some incidents you have to rewrite three times as you really properly uncover the the true truth of things, if you like. Uh, there's a story I had of the, the student demonstration in 1989, which was met by a wall of riot police where the students were all attacked by riot police and beaten down, and one student was said to have died. Now, there was one story about that that everyone believed, that a student had died, a guy called Martin Schmidt. And and this was widely printed, this was widely reported all over the BBC at the time and the Voice of America, but there was no Martin Schmidt. Uh, the person who was dragged off, who appeared dead, was a young secret police officer named Ludwig Zivchuk. And a story emerged then afterwards that I discovered that said Zivchuk had alleged that all of the, 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 the retaliation from the riot police was all a secret police plot to overthrow the hardliners in the regime, replace them with moderates and keep the party in power. And that the whole thing had been orchestrated in this complicated conspiracy that had blown up in their faces. That too was widely reported in the BBC and by respectable historians in the English-speaking world. That was the story I wrote, this kind of weird idea that the revolution was instigated accidentally by the secret police. That's a good story, right? Wrong. It's not true. I sent it off to my Prague editor and David, and he said, ah, no one in Prague believes that story anymore. So then I had to delve into a parliamentary inquiry into the matter, a Czech parliamentary inquiry, which needless to say was written in Czech that needed to be translated before I discovered that this guy was just big noting himself and that he, he, all he'd done was been beaten up by his own police accidentally, but he was trying to make himself some kind of big guy in the moment. So, so that story had to be re rewritten three times and I, I'm just glad I sort of finally got to the very bottom of it, but it came to me having to read Czech parliamentary reports to find the truth of the matter in this case. Mm. Now, the extent of this research is you obviously must enjoy research. Uh, and in some cases, uh, well, in, in many cases, you have recreated the scene and told it like a story. And in some cases, even provided conversation like dialogue. What was your thought process or approach behind how to recreate those scenes that would have happened in, you know, <laughs> BC or in the 1500s or whatever. So um, in such a way that it's, it, that you're telling it in the here and now. There's different approaches for different kinds of stories. Because I begin with the mythic past, the legends of Lubusha, the, the witch priestess princess that uh, founded the city and her husband, Proshemisil and, and other figures from mythic history, I know that I know the story, and they've been written in several different accounts. Uh, and in in those cases, I I know what is said between the people mm. involved, but I've put them in my own words because they're they're written down as something that was understood in the year eleven something or other seventy two, I think, based on a folk story from hundreds and hundreds of years mm. earlier. Uh, and then recalled and rewritten in the 19th century. So I feel I have the creative license, being careful to present this as a myth, to write the dialogue as I would write, as I would want to write it in a direct, and I'm careful to write it in a kind of a, a not a 19th century way. Mm. I want to write it in a more medieval way where the dialogue is direct and to the point. Mm. 
rather than florid and OTT, like uh, like a lot of the mythic languages is, is written in uh, as it was written in the 19th century. I'm, I'm sort of influenced by the sagas of Iceland in that way, writing in, in good, strong, clear, um, unadorned mm. English. For for stories where where I was a witness and I was part of, and I'm writing about them incidents 30 years yeah. later, I have a good recall of those conversations I had at the time. I'm sure it's not word for word. But I, I'm one of those people who recalls stories and anecdotes and have been retelling them for however many years. Uh, incidents that I witnessed in Prague, I, I uh, caught up with my, my old girlfriend, Josephine, and we had a lunch meeting. I just went, this is how I remember this happened. And I said this and you said that. And she said, oh, and there was this other guy who said this. So that's, that's how present day, well, if you like, uh, more dialogue the dialogue for which I was present and heard was recreated and put on the page. Mm. For other things, I'm relying on other people's attestations as as documented in the 20th century for a meeting between, for example, Adolf Hitler and Goebbels mm. uh, in regarding to Goebbels' uh, uh, Czech mistress. Uh, I, I've looked at several different historic accounts about that, and that's taken from Goebbels' diary. So I'm, I'm much more careful about that. But with, when, when I'm write, rewriting myth, I feel I have a certain latitude there to write the dialogue in a way that carries the narrative along. What was the hardest thing about writing this book or writing or researching this book, you know? The hardest thing? Oh, that's hard to do. That's a good question. What was the hardest thing? I, I, I think... Hmm. There are a lot of things that would. I I sort of feel with this subject matter. I love it so much. I felt I I was I was really obligated mm. to be as truthful and as on and as honourable as I possibly could be, and and so perhaps I overdid the research, which is why the manuscript was so long. I I was being super careful. And wanting to make sure I didn't miss out on important things. Mm. So that was the thing. Going back and rereading, rechecking, checking my sources, just being super careful about that stuff. Um, so I, I, part of that, I suppose, is because I have Czech friends now, and and I, I'd hate them to read it and go, oh well, you, you missed that entirely. That's completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Or you, you. So I was I was careful and checked with everyone. So I, I suppose that was that was hard part of it. Sometimes, sometimes there were uh, long parts of the history where important things happened, but not terribly interesting things happened. Mm -hmm. So I think you then need to go back and say, well, why is that important? And the, the, if it is important, then it shouldn't be that hard to get people to care. So that was that was mm. often uh, an interesting and, and tricky process. Because uh, I like my books to have a lot of narrative energy mm. in them, to, so, to carry you along, and character analysis too. How did you determine the fifty thousand words to chuck out? I, I, I think I went back. First of all, I try to have. I, I look back over the manuscript and look at the bits where I think I can see I'm straining for effect. Mm. Sometimes, thinking one day I'll, I'll sort of rewrite it and find the right tone where which, where I'll find the kind of right amount of authority and, and confidence. And it's just and you go back and you just see, you know, that's just not going to work. 
you're sort of aim, you just you, you're in constant dialogue with yourself. You go, no, that's just straining for effect there. I think so. Just cut it mm. out, cut it back, or this is not really going anywhere. It's kind of a little bit of a dead end that doesn't really take you anywhere. I kept having to go back and returning return to the city's point of view as well. So that was another thing as well. Don't spend too much time outside of Prague. Sometimes you need to travel outside of Prague in order to tell the story of the city, mm. particularly during the um, chapter I've called The Black Crow, which is the story of the Munich Agreement, whereby the Western democracies, France and Britain, pretty much handed over the country to Adolf Hitler, mm. hoping to avoid a war, which, of course, it did nothing of the kind. And that story has been told many times from London, point of view of London and Berlin, but very rarely from the place itself, from Prague, which was mm. the, 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 the object that was being bartered over. So to tell it from that point of view, reminding myself I need to go back to Prague and look at it from there. Mm. I also wanted to uh, keep looking hard for interesting women. Women are really important. Women are, uh, 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 they're often there in the background and you just have to keep your ear, ears open, eyes and ears open for them. It is a process of listening, but, but finding what women's voices and hearing what they're saying and seeing where they were clearly very influential and, or, or, and where they've been underestimated by the chauvinistic society and sexist society of the, of the time, mm. that's a challenge, and, uh, but a very rewarding mm. one. All sorts of people surprise you. Who knew the Empress Maria Theresa was such an incredibly impressive ruler? Mm. Uh, this is a thing I found again and again. Women who get to the top somehow and succeed in staying there often have to have been so extraordinarily talented to do so in a male-dominated society. So they always reward closer inspection because they tend out to be incredible characters mm. with all kinds of huge uh, strengths and terrible flaws and... Great insights, great cunning, um, short-sightedness here and there. They're often such rich and fabulous characters. That was a big part of it too, listening for the women in, a, in the male-dominated history. So apart from that rewarding aspect, what else was particularly rewarding about the entire process for you that might have been surprisingly rewarding? I think part of me was a little frightened to, to, this, to a, looking deeply into the Velvet Revolution to find that it had been all some kind of sad failure or that people had been secretly, people who I'd really admired, like Václav Havel, who was the man who led the Velvet Revolution, who became the president, would secret, secretly turn out to be uh, a, a horribly a, a creep, a flawed individual, a corrupt individual. But I didn't find that. I didn't find that at all. It was as good and better than I remembered it, to be honest. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes people are quite wonderful. Sometimes they can do really wonderful things. And I, I'm saying that in a book that's full of stories of where you see people at their absolute mm. worst, at their absolute most vicious, petty, small-minded. And out of that unpromising soil, sometimes people can rise up in a morally contaminated environment and do extraordinary mm. things. And, and you feel this surge amongst them as they know what they're achieving, which was a kind of a, not just a political uh, act, but a kind of moral revival of, of, of them as a people. Mm. The, the excitement amongst them as, the, as, they're, as they're doing that. Well, that, that's just a delight. That just makes me <laughs> smile. 
And and the other thing is that the the, a, the city has this uncanny quality to it and a strangeness to it. And I, I you just sort of know, know without knowing that there'd have to be these far out and weird stories. You just suspect you, you don't need evidence for that to pursue that. You just just know they would have to be yeah. there. And my God, they are there. <laughs> they are absolutely there. They're, um, there's there's no end to weird and fabulous and, and odd stories that have come out of that mm. city. And uncovering them is such a joy. Mm. Like I said, I'm very jealous about that process of discovery. You would have just been feeling that every day. Your passion for Prague is palpable. Do you have your next Prague on the horizon? Have you already given some thought as to your next major project of this nature? I'm wandering around a few different ideas at the mm-hmm. moment and I, I, I'm sort of – I think there's got to be a gentleness in which you sort of creep up on what your projects are. Uh, so I've, I'm, I've got a few ideas I'm sort of putting in front of myself and seeing which ones I'm returning mm. to in my thoughts and in my conversation. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's a few ideas there. So I'm just letting that just settle for a bit and see and pursue it in, in my reading uh, – there's there's a point when you say yes let's do this and then you 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 attack the reading like a bull at yeah. the gate but yeah. until then it's good to sort of be a bit fuzzy let be comfortable with the fuzziness of it all and just let things settle and play in your mind and talk with people about it um, and I'm, I, I I talk a lot about this with my wife and 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 I find that helps a lot too mm. and other friends of mine who are writers just to see what you suddenly find yourself saying, what, what, you're, in, what you're truly interested mm. in. The key is, I think, just to follow your, your genuine curiosity Definitely. Uh, about these matters. What, it, what is it that you're genuinely curious about? Mm-hmm. And that tends to solve the problem for you, I think. And there's also this other process that I've remarked on in the past that, that sounds a bit like witchcraft, I know, <laughs> but I, I tend to find that if you ask the universe for stories – um, they they come up right up to you and they introduce themselves, <laughs> yes. like 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 stray dogs in the street or something. They just come right up mm. to you and and ask for a pat. <laughs> on I the love head. that. It, it's an odd process. Uh, like uh, there have been times in all my books where I've sat down and I said, I really need a story, uh, an interesting story about uh, about something that's here or something there, something from this time. I'm, I, I I need something just in this place. And almost without fail, that story sort of, you know, comes around the corner, mm. walks up to me and says, hello, here you're looking for me. And I go, yes, I am. You're going in the book. Oh, that's nice. And, and finally, what would be your top three writing tips for people who, you know, they want to tackle something of this nature, uh, you know, a nonfiction major research project of a, whether it's a history of the place or, or some other, you know, angle in a way that is accurate, authentic, and really well-written. What would be your top three writing tips? Because, you know, you're an old hand at this now with those three books <laughs> under your belt. <laughs> I need to grow a big shaggy beard. <laughs> That's the thing. Um, yes. Well, the first thing is I'll, I'll just reiterate what I said mm. earlier, which is to trust your curiosity. Yep. Trust that mm-hmm. and let that lead you on. So much of your subconscious mind will do the work then. Mm. And that's really what happens when those stories go up and introduce themselves to you. You're, it's really the work that your subconscious mind is doing while you're asleep or, or, or when you're concentrating on other things. Let your subconscious mind solve problems for you and sleep on them and wake up and then listen to what you're, 
what what you're saying to yourself in, in the morning. Mm. The second thing is to read your prose aloud to anyone who can bear mm. it. Uh, that's a big thing. Uh, the act of uh, this is a habit I've I've picked up from doing radio. I write all my introductions to my guests, and and the, before I go into put them to air, I'll always read them aloud to my producer and get her advice. Uh, and, and but she, sometimes, she, very often, she doesn't even need to say anything. There's just a yeah. look because I've arrived at the same conclusion. Because in the process of reading out, you can hear when you're striking a false note, mm-hmm. when it's not quite right. Again, when you're straining for effect, and or you're getting repetitive, or and worst of all, boring, uh, then you know you've got to cut back or rewrite or or have another go at it. Uh, so if you can find someone who'll sit still, I've got I've learned to use all sorts of tricks to inveigle my family members into into doing this. I once when I was writing Ghost Empire, which my my son Joe was a large part of. Mm. Uh, he was 14 when he accompanied me on the trip to Istanbul. Uh, I found a cunning trick with him. I, I paid him. He was 15 when we got back, and I paid him to paint the front fence. And as he sat there painting it, earning money, I read bits of the <laughs> I read the chapters to him. And <laughs> love it. <laughs> that really helped a lot. And and the bit I was most concerned about, you know, because I I figure, you know, you can make it as brainy as you like, but to be able to engage a 15 year old uh, kid, that's a that's a big yeah. deal. Uh, the, when I wrote the chapter, which I really needed to be the absolute powerful and dramatic and moving conclusion, which is the fall of the city and the death of the last emperor, uh, I was pretty pleased with what I'd written. And and when I read it, when I read it aloud to him, he he was he was really engaged in his own quiet way. Mm-hmm. So did that work for you? And he went, yes, it did. And and you, that's all you need. I mean, that's the highest praise you're going to get from a teenager. Yes. And, and and I was just delighted by that. Then I went, oh, that that's good. And, and and as you as you're reading it out, take a, carry a pen with you and and put a red pen and put a ring around the or a line through the words that you know you, the sentences you know you've got a problem with. Right. You, a, you must a have a really long from, fence. Yeah, we did a huge one actually. This was when we were living in Brisbane and we had a big front yard and we bought all these these timber palings and I just was thinking, oh, I'll get around to painting that one day. Oh, I just can't be yeah. bothered and I've got too many too much else to do. I thought two birds, one stone. Get the kid to paint it. Pay him to do it. He gets some spending money and I get forced him to listen to my bloody writing. <laughs> I love it. So that's uh, true. That's explore your, what you're genuinely, gen, genuinely curious about. Read it aloud. And what's the third one? Uh, the, I don't know if I had a third one, mm. but the third one I'd, I'd say, I, th- I think what the curiosity solves a lot of the other problems, mm. like how are you going to work on it? Do you, do you care enough about it? Can you make other people care about it? It tends to solve a lot of those problems. I think yeah. it, it, it then allows the book to become an obsession and allows you to live in the world of it in your own head. Mm. So much so that if, if that's the case, if you succeed in doing that, then by the time it comes to finish it and hand it over, there's a real sense of leave-taking of that world that, that um, is, is terribly poignant. It's, it's like you know watching a kid grow up and leave home mm. in a way. It's a bit like that, and and then you have to let them go and let it go out into the world, and if and if people like it, then that's that's so important because people tell you they like it, they go, oh, well, it's like saying you know you brought up your kids mm. well. It's it's like mm. that. It's 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 really a lot like that, and it makes you very happy to to hear that from people if they if they do like it. Oh, or in, yeah, that it, it it it's it's terribly 
lovely and 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 and, and touching to hear that from people mm. if they do like them. Well, this book has gone out into the world and uh, it's The Golden Maze, A Biography of Prague, and I think you raised a pretty good kid here, Richard. So thank you so much for thank your you. time today. <laughs> there we go, Richard Feidler. Hope you enjoyed that. So I have to ask you because yes. this is, would be my response to this whole situation and mm-hmm. I need to know if you would mm-hmm. also have the same response to this situation. Um, so... Somebody says, Valerie, I'm going to send you to interview Richard Feidler. Uh And my first thought would be, but Richard Feidler interviews everyone. (laughs) He knows all about interviews. He's like a master interviewer. How do you prepare to interview a master interviewer? You have to forget that. Yeah, so there are a handful of people like Richard Feidler or... Andrew Denton or, you know, um, certain people. Who Lee Sales. You, Imagine doing Lee Sales. Yeah, I could be just, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be so nervous. Where, so you have to forget that otherwise okay. and you have to concentrate on things that you are genuinely interested in. And I'm sure you could hear I was genuinely interested in all yeah. of those things that we discussed. So yep. you, that's the way to get around it is to stop thinking about that and actually think, well, what is it that really piques your interest about um, about these people or about their process or, you know. And also, you know what's worse, I have to say? What's okay. worse is when you interview people who you know you're their one millionth interview. Oh, work. I know, yeah. Like, I know, you yeah. Know. Well, I, I, I touched on that with um, Jeff Apter when I interviewed him a few um, episodes ago and I did that because for that very reason because mm-hmm. I just remember doing interviews and things for Cleo or whatever yes. and you're talking to someone you know has done 80 oh. billion, you know yeah. that they've given the same responses to yeah. 80 billion people um, and I asked him about that. If you haven't listened to that episode out there have mm. a listen to it because it's a really it was you know from mm. a from that perspective it was a great chat because you know how do you interview Aretha Franklin knowing mm. that 50 million people have have interviewed her before yeah. you and knowing that you you're trying to get a story that hasn't been written 50 million yeah. times like yeah. it's so difficult it's actually worse because the beauty about when you interview an interviewer is that they haven't often been on that end no, that's so true. So it's not they're not jaded in the same way as, you know, Aretha Franklin or John Bon Jovi or Matt Damon or, you know, whoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. it is it is actually a lot harder to interview somebody who you just have been media trained within an inch of their life and is yeah. answering that question for the one no, billion. That's so true. Time. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah, I'm glad we cleared okay, that cool. up. All right, what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, what am I doing? That's a great question, Val. I'm mm-hmm. uh, still working on my novel because I have a deadline and I have to get it finished. Um, and I'm getting there and I'm really hoping yes. to type the end on it, on that yes. first draft soon. Um, I'm really aware that... I'm really aware that there's a lot of work to do in the second draft, but that's okay because that's often the case with me. Like I, I, I keep a running like tally of things that I need to address, go back and mm. fix and sort out and all of those sorts of things. I, I, I'm aware of the spots, um, you know, that I've just I've got to uh, bring out and I'm aware of the spots that need to be probably cut out. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've got to go through and do that. But I, I, I've i just got to get to the end and then, I, then I'll then i be massaging, a lot of massaging, deep, Very intense, penetrating okay. massaging. Okay, sure. 
Righto. Should we leave it there? What about you? Yeah, what we'll were you doing? <laughs> I'm too distracted to be able to answer that question. So where do we find you online, Al? You know, have we suddenly just gone into areas I should never have gone? Um, you'll find me at alisontate.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T, where I will not be massaging anybody. Um, you will find me on Twitter at, at Altate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate. Right. You, Val? You will find me at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes over at <laughs> so you want to be a writer.com.au oh my god oh we've lost Thanks the plot for listening everyone and we look forward to chatting to you again next time bye <laughs> thanks for listening to so you want to be a writer you'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.